0: We often think it's going to take a radical shift in something fundamental about the way that we're living our life in order to have more time and greater control of our time. And really what the research I've been doing and what research out there suggests is it can be enough to make small, deliberate choices each and every day to reclaim some of our time in order to feel a greater sense of
1: happiness. Welcome to the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holberg, your host, CEO, and president of Search Institute, where our own research over the past 60 years has found relationships to be the roots that all young people need to grow and thrive. Time is one of those things that we just don't quite have enough of in our lives. Whether it's trying to squeeze in that exercise, or whether it's reading that book that's been sitting on our shelves for far too long, or even just completing our to-do lists at work and at home. Our guest today, Dr. Ashley Willens, is an expert on understanding how we make decisions about time and money and the impact it has on our well-being. As practitioners, as teachers, we're facing a time where many people are being burnt out. And this topic of time management and self-care couldn't come at a more important time. Dr. Ashley Willens is a tenure track faculty member at Harvard Business School. She's published in top tier journals, and she's also been featured on prominent press outlets like the Harvard Business Review, New York Times, Washington Post, the LA Times, and many, many more. Dr. Willens has recently published a book called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. Dr. Willens will also talk about her research on generosity building interventions for young people, how giving opportunities for young athletes to give back can have powerful implications for their lives. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. I'm really excited to have Ashley Willens with us today. Welcome, Ashley. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really intrigued by your work, Ashley, and I think that your work is so important for practitioners, for teachers that are working with youth. I found myself really uh, just helped by your book. And I'll have to say that my spouse is probably very grateful for your book as well, because it's helped me make decisions about my time. So in today's episode, I'm really excited to dive deep into your work and, and also the idea of how do people integrate their daily decisions in a way that impacts their long-term well-being, because that's not talked about very much. And I think we miss that often as as uh, practitioners and people working with youth. And so I would love to hear your story, Ashley, of what brought you to really want to study this topic of understanding time and, da- and people's daily behaviors as it links to well-being. And then we'll dive into some of your work around... Uh, generosity and and helping youth uh, have opportunities for generosity. So yeah, take us back as as far as you want to take us back to what are some meaningful moments in your life that really brought you to this point and being uh, where you are today.
0: Yeah, so I'm more than happy to share my somewhat roundabout path to studying time, money and happiness. I actually started off as a professional actor and went to theater school and became really interested not in learning lines or blocking. I was not very good at knowing where to stand on stage or remembering what I was supposed to say and to whom when, but uh, really trying to understand the underpinnings of human motivation and why people do what they do, both good and bad. And that led me on a path to studying psychology in undergrad. So I went back to college after theater school and immediately the topic of psychology resonated with me because I had just been in theater school studying my characters' lives and the historical context that they lived. And here was a whole discipline devoted to trying to understand what makes people tick and even more specifically in the field that I became interested in, how we can encourage or nudge people toward living the best version of themselves through different interventions, encouragement, different setting up structures or Settings in a way that encourages people to thrive. So that's where I became really interested in the psychological study of flourishing and human happiness. And I conducted my PhD at the University of British Columbia with my undergrad and then eventual grad school mentor, Liz Dunn. And she was doing a lot of work at the time around, and still is to some extent, looking at how people make decisions about discretionary income. It's so fascinating to me that we take a field like psychology and you take a basic behavior that we all do on an everyday basis, spend money. And there was such a dearth of evidence looking at how people make decisions and how these decisions might have consequences for emotion. So should I spend my $5, $20 on myself? Should I spend it on a close family member? Should I give it to charity? Should I buy an experience? Should I buy myself out of a disliked task? And she was doing a lot of research on the time related to discretionary income and how we think about spending our money on a daily basis. And we got to talking and thought, well, a lot of these same principles that apply to money must also apply to time. We might not put in as much thought around how we spend our time on an everyday basis as we could or should. Time is a lot more amorphous. It's more difficult to track than money even. So it's probably something we think about even less about where our time goes on an everyday basis. And so I really became interested in trying to understand the ways that we spend time on an everyday basis and how they become the cumulative total of how we spend our lives. And can we help encourage people to spend more time engaged in positive and meaningful activities and less time engaged in activities that are stressful or unproductive? And it is really these Daily decisions that aggregate over time to being able to answer fundamental questions such as, am I spending my days in a way that's consistent with how I want to live my life? So that's really how I became interested in these questions, starting from a, always a fascination with human behavior and then really leaning into the academic study of of time and money and now with the publication of my book and being at Harvard business school where we're asked not just to do basic research but also to put these ideas into practice in organizations in put them put our ideas out there in a way that can be useful that can be practical i think i really think a lot about how we can take theory and implement it on an everyday basis not Just talk about these ideas broadly, but what what does that look like in practice and what are the barriers that get in the way from spending our valuable resources like time and money in ways that can not only promote our own happiness, but the flourishing of those around us?
1: Yeah, so I'm curious of this fascination or even that spark of feeling like curiosity towards psychology and understanding it more coming out of emerging out of your experience as an actor. If we even track it back even further, where did that start to uh, emerge for you and your interest as a young person yourself as a as a high school? Uh, Did you grow up in Canada? Where did you grow up? And how did this kind of even acting to psychology or that that understanding of people and how we respond and react come from. I
0: sometimes joke about this because I think my parents would always sort of make fun of me that I was always documenting, right? So I, I always had lists of things I wanted to do with my time and things that I wanted to do with my money. I would write long, extensive lists all throughout school Elementary school, middle school, of what I wanted to accomplish or what financial goals I had for myself. And I was constantly documenting. I remember one Halloween again, I, I think I was a born researcher, I would count meticulously my Halloween candy. And I knew exactly how many of each type of candy I received. And one time, my mom ate one of my prized possessions, one of the rarest chocolate bars I had received. And she didn't think I would know. And I pulled out my log and I said, yes. Mom, this one has gone missing. Do you know where it is? And she felt so bad. Uh, (laughs) Um, Because I was like meticulously documenting my Halloween candy unbeknownst to my mom. So I definitely think this quantification of daily decisions has always been something that I've just naturally done and been interested in as a way to track progress against goals, of a way to understand the world around me and yet also this emotional piece and mm-hmm. you know acting is really about understanding emotions and expressing emotions and learning how to kind of turn on and off emotions understanding others characters emotions and so that has always been something i think that's been you know front and center in my life as well so even you know I remember from a really early age thinking a lot about trying to understand other people, like what their experiences were like. And I remember the first time, for example, that I went downtown and saw a homeless person for the first time. And I remember writing in my diary about trying to understand what that must be like, like what is the visceral experience of that person's day-to-day life. And so I think what's so nice about the field of psychology is that you really do get to bridge sort of this quantifiable rigor with human experience and people's emotions and really trying to understand other people's experiences. And so what I think is why psychology has been a really great fit for me as a career is it it sort of bridges these two key fascinations of mine or two key elements of my life that have always been really important is understanding other people's experiences and empathizing and thinking and reflecting on the human experience while also being a bit of an A type and really like liking to quantify everything in my life and progress towards certain milestones and goals. So I think that, you know, what I study is sort of a bridge between emotion and rigor. And for me, I think that's a a, a space that I I really like to live in and, and think about human-centered topics in a really rigorous empirical way, but then move back and forth between empiricism and conversation.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, well, first of all, I'll say I have a six-year-old that is a very much like a little Ashley uh, Willens. is <laughs> very he keeps tracks of things and it surprises us what he knows. We're like, what? How did you know that, little man? But I also am really curious about this for you, and I want to weave this in as we go, uh, as we talk more about this, but there was kind of a that kind of type A or kind of analytic side of of really setting goals and, and achieving goals. That is a really great quality or or trait, but there's something interesting about your work that took a turn of saying it is about that. It's about documenting your time, being aware of your time, understanding the importance of your time but also connecting it to something very meaningful right and so this is something that trans- that is is bigger than yourself this is not only about reaching goals but it's a it's about how you do that uh, and how you live and how you flourish were there any kind of monumental moments for you personally in your life that shifted that little girl, Ashley Willans, really keeping track of things and documenting things and that curiosity to then I want to do that, but I want to do it in a meaningful way. Because I think there's a lot of people out there who are goal driven, but sometimes that can come at the cost of their emotional and relational health.
0: Yeah. So there have been a few transformative experiences. I think kind of going back to this idea of always wanting to use that focus and energy for purpose, for a social good, mm-hmm. that really came out of some early experiences related, again, to international travel and serving the community. So when I think back to some of my early transformative experiences, I had the opportunity to travel abroad during high school to do some nonprofit work and to work with a local community and, and build a community center and really get to know those who were struggling to make ends meet financially but who are really happy and and content and just seeing again the way that other people live and and really wanting to use this knowledge use what I like my energy to help those around me help themselves in some way if that makes sense so that was always i think one key part and i i now pursue research on things like gender equality and reducing the burden of unpaid labor for women living and working all over the world. And I've spent a lot of time in Kenya and in 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 rural I was supposed to go to rural India um, to start a field project, but I'm still implementing through a nonprofit partnership there. And really again trying to use what we know, use some of this rigor and rigorous scientific methods to really enable people to empower themselves um, by removing barriers to success. And so that's always been kind of a through line in my academic work and really wh- why I think I've always channeled this goal-driven mentality in an externally facing way is I just see, one, the need and and the impact that some of this work can have in other contexts that don't have access to some of the same resources that we that. I do and I have had. Um, So this sense of wanting to give back, this sense of responsibility to give back has been um, something that's always been a through line for me. And then on a very personal note, and I, I talk about this in the book, and I grew up with two same age cousins. So my family is quite small and I grew up with two same age cousins that have Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And for those who aren't familiar, it's a degenerative, it's a genetic degenerative disorder where you lose all function of all of the muscles in your body very slowly over time, but your neurological function is always intact. So of course, it's very difficult to live through. And both of my same age cousins passed away around the same time that I was starting my new faculty job and just Really, those kinds of experiences are so powerful and transformative in reminding you that time really is the most precious resource that you have. So, it was part of this catalyst of writing the book as well, because I felt like in my own life, I wasn't always make op- making optimal decisions. We always hear people say on your deathbed, the thing that you're going to think about isn't having spent more time on a work project. It's going to be thinking about your social relationships, the community you built um, and were part of, um, the lives you helped. Um, those are the things you're going to think about when looking back on your life. And I felt that I wasn't necessarily spending my time in a way that was cultivating things outside of work. So I was, a junior faculty member very stressed out and busy <laughs> focusing mostly on professional relationships as opposed to personal and struggled a lot during this time and so one of my one of the factors that encouraged me to write this book too was just that if i'm having a lot of time kind of living my life in a way that i ideally want to live my life if i'm so time poor and not able to invest in my health or my social relationships to the extent that i want to not contributing back to my community as much as I wish I was and I study time trade-offs for a living <laughs> this is literally my vocation is studying time and happiness then other people must be like they're having a difficult time as well and so it was my kind of inspiration for writing the book and saying you know here's some strategies based on science trying to make the science more accessible but mostly, and most importantly, rather, um, more actionable. And so I think that's, you know, I've always been interested in translating academic work to practice. But I, I think I hadn't really considered putting that into tangible, actionable resources until going through this struggle in the first couple of years, having just lost my cousins and kind of checking in on myself and saying, hey, I really don't think the way that I'm spending my time is how I want to say that I've lived my life at the end of it. And so that was really the uh, personal factor that led me to at least uh, write the book and think deeply about the practical implications of some of the work that I'm doing.
1: That was such a powerful story. And it struck me too. And I appreciate you sharing that here as well. And I think often when we go through difficult times, it reminds us of where we're spending our time. But it's not something that we really, well, I'll speak for myself, I hadn't really thought about the simplicity of some of the things in the book of really being intentional about where I spend my time and how that improves my life. And especially right now, I think people are struggling with that in general as work life has uh, merged for the last year in some ways from virtual work. And I know you've uh, published in that area as well and written about working, you know, the virtual world of work and teamwork. So I'm just thinking about the practitioners out there and the teachers. We have a high rate of burnout among teachers right now. We have practitioners are facing some of those same things. They, they, they have meaningful... A lot of them have were drawn to the field for some sense of purpose or meaning that was uh, really important to them. What are some things from your research and from your book when we talk about time poverty that you think really is applicable and could be be helpful? And then um, and I'll share some of the things that helped me uh, as i as I've gone through the book.
0: Great. We are doing research on social workers in particular and teachers and police officers and frontline workers exactly for the reasons that you're outlining. It's purpose driven and that actually creates a tendency to overwork uh, out of intrinsic motivation. And so it can be very difficult to create boundaries between work and home. And I mean, I think my the research I've done kind of speaks broadly across industry, but I do think that those working in professions that are Other serving are, as the research has shown, at a greater risk for burnout and stress and ill being as a result of of constant investment or over investment in many or all areas of uh, our lives. And so I really talk in the book about, I mean, just first, I want to define what time poverty is for folks listening who might not have heard this term before. So as a social psychologist, I really focus both on the objective, how we're spending our time, but also on the subject of how we feel about the time that we have available to us. And what I find over and over again is that our subjective feeling of having enough time predicts happiness above and beyond how many hours we work on, on a weekly basis. So how I define time poverty is... And other re- consistent with other research is that time poverty is a feeling of having too many things to do in a day and not enough time in the day to do them. So it's really the psychological can experience. To that. I, I know, no well, yeah. one in my surveys does. <laughs> yeah. um, that's a joke because 80% of working adults living and working all over the world agree with the statement that they do report feeling time poor on a regular basis more than they feel time affluent. And again, really thinking about the psychological experience, it's the feeling of being pulled in many directions and not being able to do any one thing well. And I think that's something we can all really viscerally relate to. These feelings of time poverty do have negative effects on happiness. In one survey of 3 million workers in the US, I found that time poverty had a stronger negative effect on happiness than being unemployed. And so we just see this over and over again in, in the data, regardless of whether I look in the U.S. or I look more broadly, is it's a pervasive problem. And it gets in the way of us feeling like we're living a happy and purposeful life. And so some of the strategies I've identified and something I want to underscore is that the strategies to alleviating this sense of being overwhelmed by the demands of work and life do not necessarily require quitting our jobs, moving, finding a different family, um, hiring someone to live in our household for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I think it's so interesting because we actually do need to change our habits in order to live a time affluent, more time affluent life, and that could be difficult. But I think when we think about this concept, we think, oh, that sounds nice. Maybe when my bank account has a million dollars in it or... Maybe if I was able to move to X city closer to family or like we often think it's going to take a radical shift in something fundamental about the way that we're living our life in order to have more time and greater control of our time. And really what this, the research I've been doing and what research out there suggests is it can be enough to make small, deliberate choices each and every day to reclaim some of our time in order to feel a greater sense of happiness. So in some data, for example, just spending 30 minutes in a different way, spending 30 minutes engaged more in active leisure, like socializing or volunteering, as opposed to passive leisure, like going on social media, can produce the happiness equivalent of making in some of the calculations I've done, $20,000 more of household income per year, right? So it's really just, I think the first place to start and what I talk about in the book is first identifying areas of opportunity in your own life. If you are going to be trying to become more financially savvy. You would look at how you were spending your money as we were talking about discretionary income is something we all should give some thought to as well. And so similarly, I talk about doing a time audit. I say, think about a typical work day because that's when we're likely to experience the greatest amount of stress and time stress in our lives. Think about the activities you did in the morning, the afternoon, and in the evening. What were the activities in which you felt the greatest positive emotion, joy? What were the activities you spent you felt that you experienced the most negative emotion, sadness, stress, frustration. What activities were most meaningful? Which felt the least meaningful? And so it's important to distinguish between positive and meaningful activities because some of the things that we do on an everyday basis that are meaningful, like providing constructive feedback to a colleague are not gonna feel good at the time, but they're gonna help, they're identified and aligned with our overall goals in life, training for a half marathon, Teaching our child to read, maybe in the moment those things feel hard and frustrating, but they are high in meaning. So we want to make sure we're balancing our activities on an everyday basis for both meaning and pleasure. But even just going through this simple exercise, we can start to see where some of our time goes missing on an everyday basis. Maybe we spend too much time constantly responding to work emails when we could actually just do that at one time at the end of the day. Maybe we spend too much time worrying about our cleaning in our house being perfect and maybe we could either try to let that go or outsource it altogether maybe we spend too much time on tasks at work that we could actually be delegating to someone else for whom that would be an opportunity and for us it's a chore so really the first piece of this is starting to gently and in a non-judgmental way start to look at how you're spending time on an everyday basis and asking yourself is that Aligned with how I want to live my life, ideally? And if not, why not? And what are some of the smaller things I can do on an everyday basis right now to start moving more of those activities into the positive quadrants, meaning high meaning or high pleasure, or high meaning and high pleasure, ideally? And how can I start spending less time engaged in negative and unpleasant
1: experiences? So that's really the first place to start that's so important. And I found it so helpful and and meaningful to kind of go through that in my own life, that audit and realizing like how much time I'm spending on things that I could improve and and what it's costing my family and, and my time with my children. And so the why worksheet, especially as I started to work through it, which is a worksheet to really ask that question of, well, why is this important? Why am I doing this? What it often begins to allow you to to put boundaries around your time for a greater meaning. And I think that was a really important part of of my journey. So
0: yeah, and I just want to put pick up on one example here for listeners who might be curious about like what this why exercise is. But even at a really like small level, I think asking ourselves, why are we engaging in this activity can be really powerful. So I remember my book editor and I were, we came up with this, you know, like kind of exercise in conversation because we so often both found ourselves looking at social media or spending time on reading news that was not necessarily contributing to our lives in any way. And in fact, was probably detracting from our productivity or from time spent with our partners because we ended up spending more time at the computer as a result. And just by asking ourselves why, like, why was I doing this? And we often notice patterns. So for example, we would notice that we would often check social media right before a major presentation. And then we're like, well, why is that? Well, I'm really anxious about this presentation or I'm feeling a little bit nervous. And so we started to say, okay, well, that makes sense. Again, you want to ask yourself this in a non-judgmental way. You're like, that's objectively a stressful situation. Of course, I'm trying to distract myself, but actually I'm just imbuing my day with even more negativity and stress. I'm having the opposite of intended effect here. So what could I do instead? What could I substitute that activity for? And so we both kind of came up with our own individual strategies of substitution. He would listen to Headspace. I would go for a walk around the block. Prior to a call, if I felt like I wasn't going to get anything done because I was simply thinking about this upcoming meeting that was stressful. And so I think that's a, a nice example of something small that we can all start doing in the context of our everyday life that can make a big difference to help us get more time in activities we want to be spending time on, like mindfulness training or going for walks outside, and less time on an activity like social media that I think many of us could agree we probably are over indexing on
1: yeah, and it's it's interesting, too, because I think for me personally, sometimes when I get really st- stressed and I have a lot going on, I sometimes cut off the very things that I need the most to help me get through that time, my relationships or the healthy habits or things like that. And so I just imagine, you know for practitioners, teachers listening to this, is like just finding small ways to make some disruption in what you're doing in the day and in positive ways that can make a lasting difference. And so I want to kind of move to a different topic, young people who really want to do good, but have not integrated into their daily life to do good, to live in that kind of uh, generosity. And you uh, partnered with Charitable Foundation, uh, Charitable Impact right, Uh, Foundation, to really think about how we utilize technology to help give opportunity to young people to give to give charitably. And so I would love for you to kind of lay that out for us of those daily behaviors and how they were embedded in the, the, the project that you did. And then maybe just give us some overview up to that. And if there's some findings that you, the uh, preliminary findings you're finding, and then maybe take it more broad to say, how do you see this, do your findings being able to be integrated possibly in school systems or in after school programming and things like that?
0: Yeah, so I mean, it is interesting to talk about these two streams of research in parallel because it really is about making these decisions both about time and money streamline and something that we don't even have to think about. So how can we kind of make time affluence or time management and also charitable giving and pro-social behavior a seamless part of the way that we live our lives so that we don't even have to think about it, doesn't feel like a burden. This is the way that we seamlessly go about living our day-to-day lives and helping others is built into that process. And so we really became interested in this question in part because of our partnership with Charitable Impact. So I've been engaged with the Charitable Impact Foundation since graduate school, again, always really trying to think about putting my research findings into practice. And so this was a relationship I had cultivated in graduate school. And they were so passionate and adamant, very rightly, about exactly this question of how do we integrate charitable giving into everyday life for people such that they have a checkings account, they have a savings account, and they have a charity account. So we think about our financial, they're they're focused mostly on charitable donations. So that's the realm in which we talk about, we're, we're kind of talking about Um, giving in the context of this project. But how can we make it so that it's a no-brainer for people when they're spending money, they allocate some to their checking, some to their savings, and some to charity. And when we started to delve into the data and think more about this question, of course, there's the digital finance route. And there's been some work that they've done internally to work with large credit card companies and banks, financial institutions, to really institute that model, but we also wanted to start thinking about how we can cultivate the next generation's interest in helping, exactly as you're saying, take individuals, youth who are so purpose-driven, so socially aware. I mean, I think that you, there is research, some of my own, some of others really suggesting this is on the rise, like youth are, younger generations are socially aware and astute and have this global understanding of the challenges in the world at a much deeper level than I think myself or anyone in even my generation had at their age and really make it possible for them to engage in purposeful actions on an everyday basis through institutions they were already engaged with and part of. So we kind of were thinking, you know, in the financial institution space related to banking and making charitable giving something that was natural to people when they were thinking about spending money. And how do you start to build in these models around giving that are so important? So research suggests you have some, your parents talk about charitable giving, or they volunteer your I think 70 or 80% more likely to do those activities yourself. So it really is a habit that's strengthened in in youth and in younger ages. And we even heard this as we were talking about how I ended up interested in this space. I had a transformative educational experience that imparted in me the possibility of really helping others transform their own lives. And so we started to think about, well, what are the institutions that could help to strengthen this muscle of giving and making giving a habit? And so naturally we gravitated towards schools and sports teams. Many youth are part of both of these organizations through compulsory school and many youth sports programs. And so we started to build in charitable giving to everyday life within the context of these institutions. So in public school context in Vancouver, where we started implementing these studies in schools, we had giving conversations where we worked with charitable impact. Every student was given an online charitable giving account that was endowed with some money in it uh, from the school, from a donor that was sort of funding the entire project um, as part of the charitable giving outreach that they wanted to do. And every month students would come together as a class, discuss charitable giving and different elements of charitable giving, why it matters, how to think about where you want to give in a way that's aligned with your values, how to think about giving efficiently and in a way that will have the most impact. So how you think about what your charity is going to do with the money that you're you're giving it how it helps in the community, but they most importantly went through the act of giving away that money that was in in their endowed account on a monthly basis. So they had to think hard about what they wanted to do with that money and where they wanted to give it. And so I think this act of deliberation really helped, and we see this in our data in the school context, help students take ownership and feel a sense of intrinsic motivation around giving. We saw that the program helped students feel a sense of control and autonomy over exerting like having an influence in, in purpose related areas in their life. And they did intend to want to contribute more in the future. And now hopefully they have at least one mechanism by which to do that. We talked not only about charitable giving in these monthly discussions, but also through volunteering and acts of service more broadly. So I think it does take this amorphous concept of wanting to live a, a a generous life and to help others and breaks it down very tactically. Well, here's a charity. Here's their website. Here's what you would do if you wanted to donate to charity. Here's how you think about where you might want to give based on what you care about and who's doing the most good in the communities that that you're most interested in helping. So I do think that walking the students through these programs in a very structured way is quite helpful, while also the model retains a lot of choice, which is so important for subjective well-being. We want youth to not feel like they're donating to the biggest charity in North America because their schools happens to be fundraising for them and none of the, all of the choices taken out of that decision. So it doesn't feel like an empowered decision. And so that's really what we were we felt was really important in that context and, and in the other project, which I'll talk about in a second, is empowering youth. To say, hey, we trust you with this money. We want you to make this decision. We're not going to tell you where to give it. We really want you to go through the thought process of thinking where you want to give up some of this hard-earned money of that's endowed in your account. And I think that's a hugely important part of the process. So students aren't just going through the motion. They're internalizing the action. And similarly, so now we're working with sports teams. And so we just kicked off our, our launch. Obviously, COVID delayed us a bit because sports teams were not exactly getting together last year over the over the course of the pandemic but they just came back to the sports field and in particular we're working with soccer teams right now and there again we're using technology mediated platforms so every student is getting money through their charitable giving accounts that they can access on their phones or on their computers and their parents are actually giving small amounts of money for sports related goals. So now we have students themselves earning this money through the completion of goals related to sport. And usually sports teams do fundraise for some charity that the parents decide on, at least when I was in soccer and when I was uh, growing up, that's the model, we had car washes and there's always kind of this social purpose element baked in, but you're not really owning that decision. Again, you're sort of disconnected from it. You know, your parents talk about it and you know, you have to do this car wash three weekends from now, but you don't exactly know why. And now again, we're tying sports goals. So team related goals, like number of passes, skill development that happens over the year with a small amount of income that then students earn in their accounts and can then donate to a charity of their choosing. So that decision can either happen at the individual level or the team level. And again, it's about, you know, here we are embedded in a everyday context, a sport context, going to practice. And now we are also trying to imbue that experience with the thought process of giving back. And then most importantly, we're trying to empower athletes with decision- authority over where that money goes. And I think that's really the key part of these programs is you really want to empower the youth that who are participating to have full autonomy over where the money is going to go. And ideally, like in the soccer context, they're actually earning that money through a, a sort of a allowance or, or, you know, a sort of goal really, driven in a goal driven manner. And I think that's also really key because Uh, youth are gonna, anyone takes that more seriously. We don't treat windfalls the same way we treat earned income. And so the decision takes on a different weight when you know you've worked hard to earn the money that you're now giving
1: to someone else. I'm struck again by just the practical nature of some of these approaches, Ashley, And, and thinking about these young people that not just checking something off their list for their resume or their to to go to college or to do other things but really it's giving to something that that probably is really meaningful to them because they're making a choice on which organization to give to and so it's connecting their meaning to something bigger than themselves in this way that really even probably reinforces their identity around that that thing that they care about why do you think when people are able to give to to a charity they're earning this money to give to a charity for young people why do you think that has such a positive influence on their well-being? What are some of the mechanisms there that you you think are important?
0: So this is related to a fundamental concept in psychology called self-determination theory. So the three key factors that help promote well-being and flourishing in a person's life is feeling autonomous, like they can make their own decisions and have control over their daily decisions, competent, like they're able to achieve the things that they want to achieve in life and related, that they're connecting with those around them. So I think these programs, by design in part, because we are interested in trying to assess whether these programs not only encourage habit loops around giving, but also are a mechanism by which to improve well-being of youth, that these programs really have each of these critical elements. So again, we're really putting choice in the hands of the youth who are participating and saying, we're gonna give you choice over where to donate these funds, but we're also doing it in a way that bolsters competence. We're scaffolding, there's discussions. The coaches facilitate discussions with players. The teachers are facilitating discussions with students. They can surface issues, concerns, questions misunderstandings or lack of certainty about how to use the technology platform, for example. So there's mechanisms by which to develop competence in this area over not just a one-day period of time, but over the course of a sports season or an academic semester. And then the relatedness piece happens in a couple of different ways. So in both of the programs that we're running in partnership with Charitable Impact, they're happening in group settings. So classmates are talking with each other, so that's connecting the Charitable giving opportunity is connecting students with each other, but they're also able to connect with the recipients of their actions. So there's a lot of conversation, especially in the class programming around talking about the beneficiaries of the charitable giving. And there was also, I think, one of the Charities came and actually presented um, or someone from Charitable Impact presents on the impact that their donations have at a broad scale. So that helps with relatedness more broadly to the community. And then again, when we think about the sport context, that is also facilitating relatedness with each other. Because again, now here students are working on team-based goals in order to give to charity and they're doing this together and having conversations together. So charitable giving here is a vehicle by which to have meaningful conversations with peers, with coaches, and to think about how we can affect the lives of those beyond our immediate social circles. And that's a good feeling.
1: I love that. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing for practitioners and teachers to even think about how are we giving those three autonomy, competence and relatedness to youth that often those things are are kind of taken away. And so but especially in in a context where it allows people to connect to that kind of transcendent motivation that we know is so powerful. I want to kind of shift and end this way, because I think it could be really helpful as we think about key things for takeaways from all of the great things that we talked about today from really being more intentional about your time and understanding time poverty and how to be all of us can become more affluent in our time and being able to do things more intentional that are meaningful for for ourselves and then also creating those uh, social norms and context for youth and young people to to begin to Connect to what the, the the desire to to make an impact in this world of, that answers the question not only around identity of of who am I but what can I contribute to this world in such a powerful way that moves well beyond just kind of our typical performance indicators of GPA or or whatever uh, there is. So as we as you think about that, most of our listeners are probably going to be practitioners and teachers with some researchers. What are a few things that you would say, if I had to bet on these couple of things to leave with you, I would bet on these things because they've shown up so much in my work and my research and something that they can take away from this discussion today?
0: Yeah, I think we've been talking actually a lot about how to create and sustain positive habits um, sort of implicitly in this conversation. And so kind of stepping back and thinking broadly about a takeaway from this conversation is to do anything different, to be a more time first person, to live a more intentional life, to give more to charity, to spend more time helping others. How do we think about incorporating some of those activities into the way that our day is already structured or disrupting some of the way that our day is structured in order to have more time. So very concretely from the time management perspective, something that people often ask me is, well, what have you changed in your own life as a result of this research? And one thing I said is I disrupted my morning habit. So my habit used to be go get up, go straight to the computer and start working. And now I get up, even if I wanna go straight to the computer to start working, I force myself to at least have half an hour, sometimes an hour in the morning to check in with my partner, to have a little bit of exercise time, to do some reflection, to check in with elements of myself other than work. And that helps me do the same throughout the day. So that's an example of where I disrupted a habit in order to really ensure that my day starts off in a way that is already prioritizing life maybe a little bit more centrally than just one specific aspect of my life, i.e. work. I think another area related to this or another example is exactly as we've been talking about. So when you're thinking as, as being a practitioner trying to put someone trying to encourage those around you to spend more time on an initiative, can you somehow incorporate it into something else that you're already doing? So one thing I've heard so much of during the pandemic is everyone wants more social time, but everyone is so burnt out over Zoom. So you have this these forces working against each other. We all feel very connected and simultaneously way too connected all the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so one thing you can do to, you know, kind of put those two things together is say, well, if we have a check-in meeting, let's spend five minutes informally checking in with each other. Let's not put an hour in the calendar. Let's not put a three-hour virtual game night into a team calendar when we're already feeling so burnt out about being online constantly. But let's try to check in in small increments, in five minutes, in 10 minutes, in an email chain of funny memes around a certain topic. And I think, again, that's really indicative of so much we've been talking about, right? So I didn't come in and propose to a school board that they should start a whole program or class related to charitable giving. I said, my team is going to develop curriculum that you can insert into any block in a home period, that's 10 minutes, a few discussion points, and a relatively easy to use platform. You should customize this how you want. You should talk about this in the way that you want to. And so trying to think about in incorporating some of these activities, either that we want ourselves to engage in more or that we're hoping to inspire among our constituents in places that we already meet together that already exist, I think is a really important place to start. We There's recent research that came out in Nature, which I absolutely love because I talk about this all the time and now there's finally a research paper, is we often think about when we're trying to solve a problem, adding. We just need to add another program. We need to add an additional task, add an additional responsibility, but we kind of forget about the magical power of subtraction. So maybe by Removing that long virtual games night, we can actually have more, we're actually allowing more space to have informal conversation during the day. Ending meeting early actually gives more time for spontaneous conversation. We don't need to add time for spontaneous conversation. We need to make our meetings shorter so they more naturally arise. Um, We might not need to add a charitable giving program, but rather make space in the programming that we already have That we already have to have a meaningful discussion about this important topic. And so I really encourage everyone listening to think about where not only in their personal lives, but also their professional lives that they can think about subtraction as the answer to getting to somewhere new or spending more time in areas that are important.
1: That's a great way to end. And I just want to thank you, Ashley, for your work. It's been meaningful to me in my own life. And if people want to follow Ashley, um, we'll post some things on this pod uh, and links on the podcast to follow her work. She has a, a TED Talks that she's done. She's really done some amazing work for that's publicly available for for you all to learn more about her. And of course, her book was uh, really a wonderful help to me as well. So Ashley, thank you as a researcher on time. I really appreciate your time. I'm sure you've heard that before. Thank you so much for your time today.
0: Yes. And thank you for yours. It was great having this conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Ashley Willems, for appearing on the show, as well as our support staff who made this podcast happen. This podcast was also made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation nor the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Tune in next time. When we'll be talking to Peter Samuelson and Karen Kingsley from Luther Social Services on how Opportunity Youth use their understanding of gratitude, generosity, and hope to help them navigate the challenges they face in their lives. If you have the chance, we'd love it if you could review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. On behalf of everyone at Search Institute, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.